this passage. So if you are able, please stand and let's turn our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And the Word of God reads, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for being faithful when we are unfaithful. Thank you for reminding us once again that we must be aligned to your Holy Spirit, which will convict us, which will guide us in your word. May you help us, Lord, to understand true righteousness that comes from you and not from us. We do this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So the title of the sermon, which is part two, is True versus Counterfeit Righteousness. Last time, before we started talking about the warning that we encountered today, Paul went to encourage the Philippians to be joyful, to rejoice. And that is a common theme in the book of Philippians. Encouragement, exhortation for the Philippians to continue in the faith, for the Philippians to be servants of each other by looking to Christ, who was the prime example of a true, humble servant. Now that obviously applies to us, right? We are to imitate Christ, to imitate the saints that the Scripture puts to us as examples. And as the book of Philippians is addressed to a local church, it has plenty of application to us this very day. So the verse we'll be focusing on today is verse 2, in which Paul begins a warning to the Philippians. This warning has to do with something that is essential to the gospel. That is, to be able to discriminate between true righteousness and fake righteousness. Now when we use the term discriminate, our culture, our environment has conditioned us to immediately have a thought of, like, wait a minute, I can't discriminate. But that is wrong thinking, my brothers. Why? Because... We discriminate in our everyday life. We discriminate when it comes to the most important things in our life. When we are choosing, for instance, where I'm going to send my kids to school, I have a certain set of standards. And I discriminate those schools that don't meet those standards. Much more when we are going to pursue higher education, a university where we want to know is, am I going to study a technical major? If so, I want to be able to go to a school that's going to give me the best deal. We discriminate when we choose what we will allow into our home in terms of uh, TV, entertainment, education for our kids, if we're homeschooling. So discrimination is not a bad thing. That's not a fact. We need discernment to be able to discriminate according to our biblical principles. So that is not thing that the term discrimination in itself is evil, as many times we are conditioned to think. So I say that because the scripture continually, endlessly 
those that belong to God and those that do not belong to God. That's a constant theme throughout the scripture, making a distinction, a divide, a very clear divide of those that are in the faith, belong to God, and those that are not in the faith. And many times those that are not in the faith look like they might belong, but they actually do not. And hence the warning that Paul is bringing us today. So here the issue is how do we account for righteousness? How can we be sure that we are not being fooled into fake righteousness? Well, definition of terms, right? I would say what do we do that? So we can go on talking about the subject and never really define what we mean. Biblically speaking, righteousness means meeting the moral standard demanded by God. Righteousness. It's the moral standard that God demands in order to be right with Him. And whoever has that has true righteousness. So then how does one get that righteousness? How does the one get right with God? There's many opinions in this. Depending on what culture, what what religious upbringing one may have. There's no shortness of opinion and convictions on how does one get right with God. So before we start talking about what the Bible says about it, let's see what some traditions and religions around the world says. First example, in Islam, the way you get right with God according to Islam is through the five pillars. Fasting, pilgrimage, Given of alms, prayer five times, prayer five times a day, confessing that Muhammad is God's prophet. Now, this is a continual practice throughout the life of those that consider themselves faithful Muslims. And one interesting thing in Islam is that, admittedly, they never have assurance on whether they have righteousness when God looks at them. There's no assurance for them. They're just hoping that on the day of judgment they will be on the side of goodness rather than their bad deeds outweighing their good deeds. Another example, Hinduism. Righteousness is obtained by eliminating evil in your life until you're pure enough to merge with Brahman. Now this is not a personal God, but it's a force. So you get more than one chance through reincarnation until you can reach enough goodness. And then you'll be able to be righteous. In Buddhism, it's a similar concept of reaching nirvana, right? To have no desire, except the desire to have no desire. Right? So we start to see the, the issues there. Next example, Mormonism. The plan of salvation of Mormonism. First, you have faith. There'll be faith in a different Christ, what the scripture says. Then you need to have repentance. So that God can eventually pardon you. Then you need to be baptized by the Mormon church. Then you need to have the laying out of hands by a member of what they call Melchizedek Priesthood. So that you can receive the Holy Ghost according to them. And then if you are a male, you can be ordinated into the Melchizedek Priesthood, which is for males only. After that, you receive the temple's endowments, which are secret rites. And then, when you are of age to get married, you partake of celestial marriage, in which they believe that you'll be married with your 
your husband or your wife throughout eternity, which again is, is not what Scripture teaches, but this is what they teach as part of salvation. Then you need to observe the word of wisdom. These are certain rules that the Mormon leaders and the Mormon writings have uh, built upon throughout the years, and you need to abide by that. And then you need to sustain the prophet. That means that if you reject any of the prophets or the current prophet that they currently have, then you are rejecting God himself. After that, you need to be a, a tithing member of the church. And then you need to have attendance into the weekly meetings and obedience overall to the teachings of the church and the prophet. Now, this is a pretty elaborate list, and you need to abide by them. Uh, quick other example, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. You need to have faith in Jesus. Again, this is a different Jesus in the Bible which is not God. You need to belong, belong to and strictly abide by the rules of what they call, quote-unquote, God's organization. They believe they are God's organization on earth. And this includes disassociating yourself from any family member if they do not convert. Okay, this is very uh, prevalent in the Jehovah's Witness faith. Uh, another example here, uh, Roman Catholicism. According to the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, which is found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, salvation is also a process. First, God grants you grace to believe in the Roman Catholic Church, that they are the true church, and that you must be baptized in their church, which in itself grants you salvation. They believe in baptismal regeneration, meaning if you get baptized, thumbs up, you are now saved. But salvation must be kept by performing good works is not a once-for-all deal. Part of these good works is partaking in the, in the Roman Catholic sacraments. Salvation then may be lost by mortal sins, but the Eucharist could give you forgiveness of those sins. In a nutshell, you must have faith in the Roman Catholic Church, partake in the sacraments, take the Eucharist, keep the commandments, perform penance, and do indulgences, in order to attain, maintain, and regain salvation if and when you lose it. So just a few quick examples can go on and on. But the common denominator in all of the world religions of men is the following. You must do something to get right with God. The burden is on you to perform. And as we have often spoken, about or interacted, some of us were raised in one of these states or interacted with folks that belong to any of these world religions, if we are honest, we come to find out that those requirements are impossible to keep. No one can really keep them. And it will either drive someone to think that they can keep them, and we can become very proud, like how can these other losers not keep these commandments? Or it'll lead us to despair. I can't. It's impossible. I'll never be able to meet those demands. And hence, we are not justified in the eyes of God, regardless, because it will not come through anything that we can do. So then what is it? What constitutes righteousness before God? Becoming right. When God looks at you, he sees that you have, the more, you have met the moral standard that he demands. What does it take then? If it's not through the works of man, through abiding through all these rules and regulations and 
people checking upon you to see if you've kept all the rules. If it's not that, then how? How can you become right with God? It is either something that you do, and you're going to fail, or then it's something that God does, and he's going to make it happen. Let us go to Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9 reads, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, now we start to get here a hint of what the scripture says about righteousness, about becoming saved, about God looking to us with favor. Philippians 3.9, which we'll get to here in a, in a few weeks. Philippians 3.9 reads, and be found in him, that is Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So it's becoming a little more clear now. The righteousness that we get, the moral purity that we need, then is so unreachable for us that it has to be a righteousness Righteousness, as it says, that is not my own. Rather, a righteousness that belongs to Christ. And is attained by us believing that we believe and we confess. Right? If we do that, the scripture says you will be saved. You will be declared righteous in the eyes of God. And one can say, well, wait a minute, that's way too easy. Yes and no. Yes, because we realize we can't do it. So Jesus must do it. But it was not easy. He came, he died, he was humiliated, he was buried, and he rose on the third day. It requires an act of God. So it is not easy. It's actually impossible. But it has been done through Christ. And our faith in him is what gives us our righteousness. Then the good works as Christians, as believers, are evidence that we actually are believers, that we actually do have righteousness. So then, meeting that moral standard demanded by God, if you meet it, you are saved and have eternal life. If you don't meet it, you are lost and will be condemned. And the only way to meet it is basically to cry out to God and say, I can't do it. Lord Jesus, I need your righteousness. And scripture tells us that he will turn no one away that comes to him in a contrite and humble heart. So then, who meets this standard then? Who meets this standard of righteousness? This is here then where we get to our study today. Fake righteousness versus true righteousness. Today, we're going to take a look at the characteristics of fake righteousness. Let's be aware of that. That's the warning Paul has for us. And the next week, we'll look at the characteristics of true righteousness, of true Christians. So let us dig in then. Characteristics of fake righteousness. Philippians 3.2 reads, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's the verse we'll study today. There's a lot packed into here. Paul tells us to look out for, in the language there that he's using, it means to beware of, to watch carefully, but not just to watch, but it says, the context here denotes that it's to watch so that you can understand.
understand, okay? Not just to look out. Situational awareness in war means not only knowing what your enemy is up to, but why? Like, what does that mean? How can I be aware, right? Be aware with the purpose of understanding what someone is up to. So we have three lookouts, right? Somebody said, hey, heads up, something's coming your way. So we have three lookouts that Paul's telling us. The first lookout, he says, beware of, beware of dogs. In biblical language, a dog would be typically a wild, unclean dog, not a domestic animal, and is usually associated with a scavenger wild animal that is opportunistic, just looking to see where he could strike. Make no mistake, this is a derogatory designation. Paul is being offensive. He's being very offensive. And why would Paul be so harsh in describing these people that he's telling the Philippians to be careful, to be aware of? Well, we turn to Scripture to get some context. Psalm 59 verse 6 says, each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. So most dogs in the ancient Near East were scavengers, despised and considered unclean. So this group that Paul is warning the Philippians about, he is wanting to make them aware that they are like scavengers. They are unclean. They are looking to see who they can strike, who they can bite, who they can damage. The religious Jews of Paul's day had specifically designated this term, dogs, to Gentiles and Samaritans, looking down upon them because they were not part of the chosen people of God. And here Paul grabs hold of that term and turns it around on them, saying, you are actually the dogs. You are the despicable, evil people that you hold others to be. You are actually it. Now, to the religious, legalistic Jews that are being labeled dogs, they were the ones prowling around like scavengers, trying to prey on new Christians, as well as those that were being evangelized in the early church. Okay, They were coming in, where their destructive legalism tried to tell them that, yeah, you can believe in Christ, but you need more than that. The word dogs was also used as a designation for false prophets. The book of Isaiah, referring to Israel's unfaithful leaders, this is what Isaiah writes. Isaiah 56, verses 10 and 11, it says, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Description, the description of unfaithful leaders leading people astray. 
causing people to stumble. Instead of getting them closer to God, they leading them in a path further away from God. So Paul is calling out certain people here. He's being very specific. And undoubtedly, these people will take offense. In our politically correct world, when was the last time that Bible teachers or churches get called out for leading people astray from coming to God? Now, yes, this becomes a personal attack, right? In the way that Paul is doing it. But he's doing that because they're attacking the gospel, not because they're attacking him. Paul could care less if they're attacking him. So then, if we do call somebody out for preaching a false gospel, may it be not in the basis of my personal preferences or your personal preferences, but may it be on the basis of them being unbiblical and leading others astray. Right? It's not because I don't like the way they run their service or I don't like their music or what have you. No, if we're going to criticize someone, let it be because they are leading people astray blatantly and unapologetically. Then, biblically speaking, we can call them out. The second lookout is for evildoers. This is one who continually engages in an activity that is in working of evil, doing evil. Why does Paul directly accuse people of being workers of evil? Well, precisely because these folks were promoting good works as a way of becoming righteous before God. If you want to be right with God, here's a list of things that you need to do. Putting them in bondage to a standard that they would not be able to meet. Luke 16, 15 reads as follows. This is Jesus talking. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, so these evildoers are trying to justify themselves. Right? To justify oneself is to make one appear right. Make one appear righteous before God. And Jesus says, if you try to do that, you're doomed. You can't do it. You cannot justify yourself before God. There's no way. The quick recap we did about some of the world religions was a commonality among all of them. It's that, essentially saying you can justify yourself. If you want to be right with God, here's the list of things you need to do. Things that are neither profitable in the long run and will not be able to be kept either by those that are being demanded to keep them or the one prescribing to keep them. Not even they can keep them. And that's not the way that one becomes righteous before God because that's trying to justify yourself. The way that many people put it is by being a good person, right? And we are reminded 
that there is no such thing as a good person when we look at people, when we look at ourselves, by the, st by the standard that God sets. There's no such thing as a good person. We all have gone astray. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So then, there's a third lookout. Paul says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, this could be a little bit cryptic. The NASB translation says, beware of the false circumcision. And herein then lies the main issue, the crux of the matter. There's something that has an outer appearance giving the impression of obedience to God, but in reality is self-righteousness, self-justification. Matthew 23, 28, again, Jesus talking, it says, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Right again, Jesus confronting those that think they have righteousness because of something they've done. Because it looks as though they are righteous. Right? My friends, we can fall in that trap. I can stand up here and preach the word of God and give you an appearance that I am righteous. But God knows my heart. And there'll be greater judgment on me if I'm preaching one thing and living another thing. And likewise to you, my friends. If it appears, if you're fooling me or fooling your brothers and sisters, thinking that you live a righteous life, appearing righteous, you are trying to self-justify yourself. And Jesus is telling us, wrong, I know your heart. I know your thoughts. So in any case, if there was something that the Jewish people held as a badge of honor, as a sign of them being the chosen people of God, as them being superior than all the other nations, one thing that physically made them different, and in their mind superior to all us dirty Gentiles, they proudly practice circumcision. Now, what were these legalistic Jews telling the new Christians and those being evangelized? What were they telling them? Acts 15 tells us that. Next week, we'll look further into Acts 15. Today, we'll read only the first verse. Acts 15, verse 1. This is talking about the Judaizers. Those that would, would come to the the Christian early church and would try to impose their legalism upon the, the new Christians. Acts 51 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, quote, Unless you circumcise, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unquote. You see that? We go back to the list of world religions that we talked about. You must do this and that and the other in order to be saved. Right? Now, circumcision was something very important that God did command. 
in the Old Testament. And as we're going to see, what was the real intent of circumcision for the Jewish people? And how had that practice been eroded of its original purpose to then be something only outwardly that the Jewish people looked at as them having justification before God? And now they're trying to put this on the new Christians. Oh, you want to be a Christian? Well, you can be saved unless you do this. And this is a common theme, right? Not with circumcision, perhaps, but with other things. I remember when I was a new Christian, I was at Denny's reading my Bible, and some men approached me. And I like to be up front, right? So they started talking to me, and, and I sensed that they kind of wanted to pers uh, persuade me of something. So I said, well, I mean, just cut to the chase. Like, what are you trying to tell me? Like, just tell me. I'm, I'm okay. I'm not going to be offended. And they told me, well, I mean, it's good that you're reading the Bible, and it's good that, you know, you said that you're, that you're saved. But unless you come to our church and be baptized by us, you cannot be saved. I'm like, okay, well, let me look into that, right? I, I don't know any better. I need to look into that. Similarly, a few months after that, through an acquaintance, when they asked me if I had been going to church and reading Bibles, yes, I have, yes. Says, well, you know, you can be saved, but in order to be saved, you need to speak in tongues. Like, oh, wow, really? What is that? Right? So again, only to show that there's an endless list of things that people say, well, yeah, you could be a Christian, but unless you do X, you cannot be saved. Right? It's nothing new under the sun. They were doing the same thing here to the new Christians in Jerusalem. So going back to the issue of circumcision. Let's take a look at what God tells the Jewish people about this practice. Genesis 17, verses 10 and 11. It says, this is God speaking. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. There it is. God makes it clear. Is there a commandment? Yes. And it is to be taken seriously by the Jewish people. Now, they did took it very seriously. It was a sign of God's covenant, his promise, his contract between him and his people. But the question is, what was the circumcision to represent? Is it only to be a physical mark of God's covenant? Or is there some further and deeper significance of this? Interesting to note, first of all, that out of all things, God chose the cutting of the foreskin on the male organ as a covenant sign. That in itself is interesting. Medically speaking, there's actually a lot of evidence that it brings many health benefits. And in God's wisdom, it expands the overall health of the males in ancient Israel throughout history. Because if the men are healthy, they're going to be able to provide and protect and have that male role in the Jewish culture. But there's more significance to it 
as we will see here from Scripture. First, this is God's rem reminder that what is required for human procreation, the act of human procreation, will forever be linked to man's most depraved desires. Get that? On the one hand, the act of procreation, man as a sinner, will only be able to produce another sinner. And that little sinner, once he grows up, through the act of procreation, will only be able to create more sinners, and so on and so forth. This is the reason why Jesus did not have a physical human father, but rather was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Jesus was not tainted with original sin. He was not fallen. On the other hand, this ripping of the foreskin in the male member is a reminder for humankind that this desire for sexual gratification will be a strong stumbling block. Throughout scripture, throughout history, even now. What is consistently the single most powerful and influential sin that man knows? Typically, money, power, and sex. The fall of man in order to fulfill this desire. Biblically speaking, that will be sexual depravity, sexual immorality. And hence, circumcision should be and should have been a reminder that there's blood that needs to be shed for such grave sin. This is serious. And then secondly, this sign then of circumcision was not to be only a physical sign alone, but rather is something that looked deeper and looked forward into what God ultimately demanded of his people. God, speaking of the disobedience of Israel and the consequence of their sin and their need for repentance, starts to give us an idea of what he really intends by circumcision. Let us take a look. Leviticus 26.41 So that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity. Deuteronomy 10.16 Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the forcing of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. One more, Ezekiel 44, 7. In admitting foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple, when you offer to me food, the, the, the fat and the blood, you have broken my covenant in addition to all your abominations. So now we start to see what 
God really intended by circumcision. The key being then that the Jewish people have strictly turned circumcision into a work, into an outer appearance only, and became very proud of it. So proud that they were now self-justifying themselves by this act and not paying any attention to whether their hearts, their lives, their minds were truly changed. This was only an outward appearance. Their confidence in being right with God, of being saved, had become putting their trust in their work, in something that they did, in the ritual of circumcision. And not along, they missed what God had intended, which is circumcision of your heart, a renewing of your heart. Submission to God in the totality of their lives. My brothers and sisters, that is what's demanded of us today. Circumcision, yes. But circumcision, that is humanly impossible to do. Circumcision of the heart. That is expected of you and me today. So then this is why Paul is here saying, Beware of these dogs, as they are workers of evil, and they are the false circumcision. The one thing that the Jewish people prouded themselves so much on, Paul says, they are the false circumcision. Now, you believe that was offensive to the Jewish people? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything they stood for, Paul's telling them, you're actually fake. And you are not right before God. So then why beware? Why does Paul give this three lookouts? It was because those, Jew, those Judaizers were saying, okay, you want to become a Christian? Good. But in order to be right with God, you need Jesus plus circumcision. You need Jesus plus you need to abide by the law of Moses. If you don't, you cannot be saved. Essentially, they were teaching works salvation. There's two types of religion in, in, in the world. Those that tell you that you're going to become right with God by doing something. And then there's Christianity that tells you Christ has done all that is needed. And nobody else can do it. Let us fall, therefore, on the rock, on Christ, on our refuge. Knowing that if we fall under his protection, we are righteous. Because he has done what is required to be right with God. Next week, we'll take a look at the characteristics of actual righteousness. right? So that we learn not to focus on the external things while the things of the heart are unchanged. So then let us recap what we have gone through today in bewaring of false righteousness. First, there's a warning to those who oppose the gospel, right? And those who oppose the gospel can be obvious, right? There's a false message altogether. Or it could be not so obvious. 
We have Jesus, but then let's add these other things. Otherwise, you can't be saved. That would be Jesus plus joining a specific group. Jesus plus speaking in tongues. Jesus plus partaking in secret rites. Jesus plus social justice. Jesus plus yada, 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 yada. Paul specifically addresses this in the book of Galatians. It says, even if an angel of God comes and preaches you another gospel that is not the gospel I've taught you, let him be a curse. Let him be damned to hell. So very strict warning with very harsh words. So then to repent and believe the gospel, what does that mean? That the righteousness we need, the righteousness of Jesus, is the only thing God will accept. That's perfection. Do I have? Do you have perfection? I don't think so. Scripture says we don't have it. So we need to depend on Christ for his perfection to be accounted to us. We cannot earn it, but we can only come to God knowing that we deserve judgment and ask him for mercy. And he will give us mercy. He will make us right. So that the perfection of Christ can be applied to us when we trust in Jesus. And it's of nothing that we have done or can do. As we are reminded by Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace, right, we don't deserve it. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We can't take no credit. Christ has done it. He has given us his righteousness. And we have to have the zeal that Paul has, where if somebody tells you otherwise, you go on attack. You go on defense. It's a false gospel. And it must be rebuked. Secondly, we saw that outward signs, in this case circumcision, does not save us. Any outward act, work, will not make us right with God. Let us put some actuality to that. What does that look like? Well, we can come to service. We can be here every week. That will not give you righteousness. That will not save you. Yet, if you are saved, you will want to congregate. Because you're saved, not so that you can be saved. Out of obedience to Christ. Another example, one can take the Lord's Supper. But it's no good if you don't believe the gospel. As a matter of fact, you'll bring judgment on yourself if you take the Lord's Supper and you don't believe the gospel. Again, yet a real believer will want to, will readily and respectfully want to take the Lord's Supper out of obedience to our Lord. The other ordinance, you could be baptized and not believe. What good is that? This gives us a picture there of a church goer. I come to church, right? I congregate. I take the Lord's Supper. I've been baptized. So, hey, look at me. I'm saved. My brothers and sisters, wrong. We are not saved because of that. The righteousness of Christ is applied to us when we trust in his perfection, in his perfect life, in his 
death, his burial, his resurrection, and transforms our life in such a way that we want to obey Christ. That we come to God and say, Lord, I'm nothing, I can't. But Jesus can. And because of him, I'm here. Obedience because we are saved. So then those outward signs, they're good signs. Let's come to church. Let's pray. Let's partake of the Lord's Supper with joy. Let's baptize those new believers. Yes, and we do that with joy. But that outward sign means nothing if your heart has not been circumcised. If your heart has not been changed. If you have not come to Christ with the grief of sin to say, Lord, forgive me. So then the question this morning to us personally is, am I righteous before God? Are you righteous before God? Let us not turn to say, well, you know, I've done this and that. No, wrong. We already know. We cannot do anything to be saved. So God reminds us as we answer that question of whether we are righteous or not, that the only right answer, biblically speaking, is yes, I am righteous. Like the scripture says in Philippians 3.9, with a righteousness that is not my own. I am righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And to that, the last question then will be, is Jesus your Lord? Let us not be those who want the Savior, the Savior, but don't want the Lordship of Jesus. Is he Lord of my life? Do I submit to him in all that I do, say, act? We can become right with Jesus so that our works, both good and bad, cannot be the basis by which we take credit. But that our works, those that are good, we say, because of Christ, I am able to obey. And those works that are bad, we say, my Lord forgives me, and I get up, and I keep walking in repentance. Let us submit then to the Lordship of Christ that requires our self-denial. Our good works then, our everyday obedience to Christ, will be the result of our righteousness, the result of our salvation, and not the cause of it. Our righteousness, our salvation comes only because of the perfection of Christ. Let us cling to that today, this week, this month, and as we go forward in our life. And if we do not know Christ, this is a time to say, Lord, I've been playing games. I don't know you. I thought I was righteous. I thought I was right before you because of something I did. Forgive me. And I trust in the righteousness of Jesus alone. If that's where you are this morning, then that calls for you. And he will not turn you away. He'll give you a new heart, a heart of flesh that's been circumcised, that's been changed, so that you can be born again and have a transformed life, new desires and a new life in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you because we can trust that you work all things for good for those that love you. Lord, if we have any doubt whether we have righteousness, may we trust in you. And may you 
assure us, Lord, that if we trust in the righteousness of Christ, we are forgiven. We are yours. And may that be for your glory and for our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.